Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric, and today we're reading short and deep, a voyage to Svanamoe, by Clark Ashton Smith. First published in Weird Tales, August 1931, along with uh, The Whisper and Darkness by H.P. Lovecraft and The Wolf Leader by Alexander Dumas, which uh, both of which I've read. Um, this one I, I've been saving because uh, Clark Ashton Smith is incredibly rich. Um, you can't eat two Clark Ashton Smiths in a row. You would die. <laughs> you have to space them out because I'm telling you, the texture, the... Oh, just so sugary. <laughs> it's it's incredibly delicious. He's a unique chef, but you know you can't have uh, have this for every meal. You would literally die. <laughs> Smith, as as we've said often, one of the big three from Weird Tales. Mm-hmm. Um, he is um, he uses language. I mean, he really. If there's an abstruse word for something that could otherwise be said simply, <laughs> yeah. Smith goes for abstrusion, abstruseness, abstrusity. Yeah. Um, it's his and fetish. Words that have, it, he, it is indeed. He loves it. Uh, fetish is itself an issue that I think we might get to when we discuss this. Mm-hmm. Since it's a longer story, but we'd like to read it aloud. Should we get right to it? Please do. A Voyage to Svanomoe. There are many marvelous tales, untold, unwritten, never to be recorded or remembered, lost beyond all divining and all imagining, that sleep in the double silence of far recess of time and space. The chronicles of Saturn, the archives of the moon in its prime, the legends of Antilia and Moiria, these are full of an unsurmised or forgotten wonder, and strange are the multitudinous tales withheld by the light years of Polaris and the galaxy. But none is stranger, none more marvelous than the tale of Hotar and Evidon and their voyage to the planet Sphenomoe. From the last isle of foundering Atlantis, hearken, for I alone shall tell the tale, who came in a dream to the changeless center where the past and future are always contemporary with the present, and saw the veritable happening thereof, and, waking, gave it words. Hotar and Evidon were brothers in science as well as by consanguinity. They were the last representatives of a long line of illustrious inventors and investigators, all of whom had contributed more or less to the knowledge, wisdom, and scientific resources of a lofty civilization matured through cycles. One by one, they and their fellow savants had learned the arcanic secrets of geology, of chemistry, of biology, of astronomy. They had subverted the elements, had constrained the sea, the sun, the air, and the force of gravitation, compelling them to serve the uses of man, and lastly they had found a way to release the typhonic power of the atom, to destroy, transmute, and reconstruct the molecules of matter at will. However, 
by that irony which attends all the triumphs and achievements of man, the progress of this mastering of natural law was coincidental with the profound geologic changes and upheavals which caused the gradual sinking of Atlantis. Age by age, eon by eon, the process had gone on. Huge peninsulas, whole seaboards, high mountain ranges, cityed plains and plateaus all went down in turn beneath the diluvial waves. With the advance of science, the time and location of future cataclysms was more accurately predictable, but nothing could be done to avert them. In the days of Hotar and Evidon, all that remained of the former continent was a large isle called Poseidonus. It was well known that this isle, with its opulent seaports, its eon-surviving monuments of art and architecture, its fertile inland valleys and mountains lifting their spires of snow above semi-tropic jungles, was destined to go down ere the sons and daughters of the present generation had grown to maturity. Like many others of their family, Hotar and Evidon had devoted long years of research to the obscure telluric laws governing the imminent catastrophe and had sought to devise a means of prevention or at least of retardation. But the seismic forces involved were too deeply seated and too widespread in their operation to be controllable in any manner or degree. No magnetic mechanism, no zone of repressive force was powerful enough to affect them. When the two brothers were nearing middle age, They realized the ultimate futility of their endeavors, and though the peoples of Poseidonus continued to regard them as possible saviors whose knowledge and resource were well-nigh superhuman, they had secretly abandoned all effort to salvage the doomed isle and had retired from sea-gazing Lafara, the immemorial home of their family, to a private observatory and laboratory far up in the mountains of the interior. Here, with the hereditary wealth at their command, the brothers surrounded themselves not only with all the known instruments and materials of scientific endeavor, but also with a certain degree of personal luxury. They were secluded from the world by a hundred scarps and precipices and by many leagues of little trodden jungle, and they deemed this seclusion advisable for the labors which they now proposed to themselves and whose real nature they had not divulged to anyone. Hotar and Evidon had gone beyond all others of their time in the study of astronomy. The true character and relationship of the world, the sun, the moon, the planetary system, and the stellar universe had long been known in Atlantis, but the brothers had speculated more boldly, had calculated more profoundly and more closely than anyone else. In the powerful magnifying mirrors of their observatory, they had given special attention to the neighboring planets had formed an accurate idea of their distance from the earth, had estimated their relative size, and had conceived the notion that several, or perhaps all, might well be inhabited by creatures similar to man, or, if not inhabited, were potentially capable of supporting human life. Venus, which the Atlanteans knew by the name of Sphanomoe, was the planet which drew their curiosity and their conjecture more than any other. 
Because of its position, they surmise that it might readily resemble the Earth in climatic conditions and in all the prerequisites of biological development. And the hidden labor to which they were now devoting their energies was nothing less than the invention of a vehicle by which it would be possible to leave the ocean-threatened isle and voyage to Svanomoe. Day by day, the brothers toiled to perfect their invention, and night by night, through the ranging seasons, they peered at the lustrous orb of their speculations as it hung in the emerald evening of Poseidonus, or above the violet-shrouded heights that would soon take the saffron footprints of the dawn. And ever they gave themselves to bolder imaginings, to stranger and more perilous projects. The vehicle they were building was designed with complete foreknowledge of all the problems to be faced, of all the difficulties to be overcome. Various types of air vessels had been used in Atlantis for epics, but they knew that none of these would be suitable for their purpose, even in a modified form. The vehicle they finally devised, after much planning and long discussion, was a perfect sphere. Like a miniature moon, since, as they argued, all bodies traveling through etheric space were of this shape. It was made with double walls of metallic alloy whose secret they themselves had discovered, an alloy that was both light and tough beyond any substance classified by chemistry or mineralogy. There were a dozen small round windows lined with an unbreakable glass and a door of the same alloy as the walls that could be shut with hermetic tightness. The explosion of atoms in sealed chambers was to furnish the propulsive and levitative power and would also serve to heat the sphere's interior against the absolute cold of space. Solidified air was to be carried in electrum containers and vaporized at the rate which would maintain a respirable atmosphere. And foreseeing that the gravitational influence of the Earth would lessen and, in, and cease, and foreseeing that the gravitational influence of the Earth would lessen and cease as they went further and further away from it, they had established in the floor of the sphere a magnetic zone that would simulate the effect of gravity and would obviate any bodily danger or discomfort to which they might otherwise be liable. Their labors were carried on with no other assistance than that of a few slaves members of an aboriginal race of Atlantis who had no conception of the purpose for which the vessel was being built and who, to ensure their complete discretion, were deaf-mutes. There were no interruptions from visitors, for it was tacitly assumed throughout the Isle that Hotar and Evidon were engaged in seismologic researches that required a concentration both profound and prolonged. At length, after years of toil, a vacillation, doubt, anxiety, the sphere was completed, shining like an immense bubble of silver. It stood on a westward-facing terrace of the laboratory from which the planet Svanomoe was now visible at eventide beyond the purpling sea of the jungle. All was in readiness. The vessel was amply provisioned for a journey of many lustrums and decades and was furnished with an abundant supply of books with implements of art and science with all things needful for the comfort and convenience of the voyagers. Hotar and, Ev Hotar and Evidon were now men of middle years in the hale maturity of all their powers and faculties. 
They were the highest type of the Atlantean race with fair complexions and lofty stature, with the features of a lineage both aristocratic and intellectual. Knowing the nearness of the final cataclysm, they had never married. They had not even formed any close ties, but had given themselves to science with a monastic devotion. They mounted the inevitable they mourned the inevitable perishing of their civilization with all its epic garnered lore, its material and artistic wealth, its consummate refinement. But they had learned the universality of the laws whose operation was plunging Atlantis beneath the wave, the laws of change, of increase and decay. And they had schooled themselves to a philosophic resignation, a resignation which mayhap was not untempered by a foresight of the singular glory and novel, unique experiences that would be entailed by their flight upon hitherto untraveled space. Their emotions, therefore, were a mingling of altruistic regret and personal expectancy when, on the evening chosen for their departure, they dismissed their wandering slaves with a writ of manumission and entered the orb-shaped vessel and Svanamoe brightened before them with a pulsing luster, and Poseidonus darkened below as they began their voyage into the sea-green heavens of the west. The great vessel rose with a buoyant ease beneath their guidance, till soon they saw the lights of Susran the capital and its galley-crowded port, Lafara, where nightly revels were held and the very fountains ran with wine that people might forget a while the predicted doom. But so high in air had the vessel climbed that Hotar and Evadon could hear no faintest murmur of the loud lyres and strident merrymaking in the cities beneath. And they went onward and upward till the world was a dark blur and the skies were aflame with stars that their optic mirrors had never revealed. And anon, the black planet below was rimmed with a growing crescent of fire and they soared from its shadow to unsettling height, from its shadow to unsetting daylight. But the heavens were no longer a familiar blue, but had taken on the lucid ebon of ether, and no star nor world, not even the littlest, was dimmed by the rivalship of the sun. And brighter than all was Fanamoe, where it hung with unvacillating lambents in the void. Mile by stellar mile, the earth was left behind, and Hotar and Evadon, peering ahead to the goal of their dreams, had almost forgotten it. Then, gazing back, they saw that it was no longer below, but above them, like a vaster moon, and studying its oceans and isles and continents, they named them over one by one from their maps as the globe revolved, but vainly they sought for Poseidonus amid an unbroken, glittering waste of sea." And the brothers were conscious of that regret and sorrow, which is the just due of all evanished beauty, of all sunken splendor. And they mused a while on the glory that had been Atlantis and recalled to memory her ob and recalled to memory her obelisks and domes and mountains, her palms with high and haughty crests and the fire-tall plumes of her warriors that would lift no longer to the sun. 
their life in the orb-like vessel was one of ease and tranquility and differed little from that to which they were accustomed. They pursued their wanted studies. They went on with experiments they had planned or begun in days past. They read to each other the classic literature of Atlantis. They argued and discussed a million problems of philosophy or science. And time itself was scarcely heeded by Hotar and Evidon. And the weeks and months of their journey became years, and the years were added into lustrums, and the lustrums into decades, nor were they sensible of the change in themselves and in each other. As the years began to weave a web of wrinkles in their faces, to tint their brows with the yellow ivory of age, and to thread their sable beards with ermine, there there were too many things to be solved or debated, too many speculations and surmises to be ventured for such trivial details as these to usurp their attention. Svanomoe grew brighter and larger as the half-oblivious years went by, till anon it rolled beneath them with strange markings of untraveled continents and seas unsailed by man. And now the discourse of Hotar and Evidon was wholly concerning the world in which they would soon arrive, and the people so soon arrive, and the people's animals and plants which they might expect to find. They felt in their ageless hearts the thrill of an anticipation without parallel as they steered their vessel toward the ever-widening orb that swam below them. Soon they hung above its surface in a cloud-laden atmosphere of tropic warmth, but though they were childishly eager to set foot on the new planet, they sagely decided to continue their journey on a horizontal level till they could study its topography with some measure of care and precision. To their surprise, they found nothing in the bright expanse below that in any manner suggested the work of men or living beings. They had looked for towering cities of exotic aerial architecture, for broad thoroughfares and canals and geometrically measured areas of agricultural fields. Instead, there were only a primordial landscape of mountains, marshes, forests, oceans, rivers, and lakes. At length, they made up their minds to descend. Though they were old, old men with five-foot ermine beards, they brought the moon-shaped vessel down with all the skill of which they would have been capable in their prime. And opening the door that had been sealed for decades, they emerged in turn, Hotar preceding Evidon, since he was a little the elder. Their first impression... Their first impressions were of torrid heat, of dazzling color and overwhelming perfume. There seemed to be a million odors in the heavy, strange, unstirring air, odors that were almost visible in the form of wreathing vapors, perfumes that were like elixirs and opiates that conferred at the same time a blissful drowsiness and a divine exhilaration. Then they saw that there were flowers everywhere, that they had descended in a wilderness of blossoms. They were all of unearthly forms of supermundane size and beauty and variety with scrolls and volutes of 
petals many hued that seemed to curl and twist with a more than vegetable animation or sentiency. They grew from a ground that their overlapping stems and calyxes had utterly concealed. They hung from the boles and fronds of palm-like trees. They had mantled beyond recognition. They thronged the water of still pools. They poised on the jungle tops like living creatures, winged for flight to the perfume drunken heavens. And even as the brothers watched, the flowers grew and faded with a thaumaturgic swiftness. They fell and replaced each other as if by some leisure domain of natural law. Hotar and Evidon were delighted. They called out to each other like children. They pointed at each new floral marvel that was more exquisite and curious than the rest, and they wondered at the speed of their miraculous growth and decay. And they laughed at the unexampled bizarrery of the sight when they perceived sudden when they perceived certain animals new to zoology who were trotting about on more than the usual number of legs with orchidaceous blossoms springing from their rumps. They forgot their long voyage through space. They forgot there had ever been a planet called the Earth and an isle named Poseidonus. They forgot their lore and their wisdom as they roamed through the flowers of Sphanomoe. The exotic air and its odors mounted to their heads like a mighty wine and the clouds of golden and snowy pollen which fell upon them from the arching arbors were potent as some fantastic drug. It pleased them that their white beards and violet tunics should be powdered with this pollen and with the floating spores of plants that were alien to all terrene botany. Suddenly, Hotar cried out with a new wonder and laughed with a more boisterous mirth than before. He had seen that an oddly folded leaf was starting from the back of his shrunken right hand. The leaf unfurled as it grew. It disclosed a flower bud, and lo, the bud opened and became a triple chaliced blossom of unearthly hues, adding a rich perfume to the swooning air. Then on his left hand, another blossom appeared in like manner, and then petals and leaves were burgeoning from his wrinkled face and brow, were going in successive tears from his limbs and body, were mingling their hair-like tendrils and tongue-shaped pistols with his beard, and he felt no pain, only an infantile surprise and bewilderment as he watched them. Now from the hands and face and limbs of Evidon, the blossoms also began to spring, and soon the two old men had ceased to wear a human semblance and were hardly to be distinguished from the garland-laden trees about them. And they died with no agony, as if they were already part of the teeming floral life of Sphanomoe, with such perceptions and sensations as were appropriate to their new mode of existence. And before long, their metamorphosis was complete, and every fiber of their bodies had undergone a dissolution into flowers, and the vessel in which they had made their voyage was embowered from sight in an ever-climbing mass of plants and blossoms. Such was the fate of Hotar and Evidon, the last of the Atlanteans, and the first, if not also the last, of human visitors to Sphenomoe. There's so much to say about this crazy, amazing story. Um, it's very simple, except uh, where it's 
it's quite complex. Um, <laughs> and one of the things that I would say is um, it's a super science story, which is about these, you know, super genius uh, uh, scientists who and engineers who build amazing tech and then travel into space. And so there, there, there's that. Um, there's the fact that the, there's two Atlantean brothers on the last island of Atlantis who flee their people who think, oh, these guys are working to save us. Nope. <laughs> they know they can't be saved, so they flee the planet uh, in the same way that is done in Superman uh, with Krypton. Uh, this, that's a super science story as well, and uh, this precedes that, uh, which I think uh, Superman was ripped off of um, a more famous story than this uh, called um, uh, was it Run Worlds Collide, which is also uh, after this. So this is like a a proto um, Superman story in a sense, but it's got two Supermen who grow, have grow five foot beards. <laughs> And then, as one is older than the other, slightly older than the other, he's the first to step out of the spaceship onto this new planet. Uh, and he's the first one to sprout, Hotar's the one to sprout flowers from his hands. Um, and then his brother does the same. What's so interesting to me about this is we've kind of seen this story before in another uh, story we've done, or a prose poem we've done for this podcast which is the forbidden forest it's about a little boy who disobeys his parents goes out into the woods and becomes a flower (laughs) or a series of flowers um so there's the fetish right (laughs) the flower fetish but oh my god it's so rich and just you know if you want to learn new vocab words (laughs) evanish lustrans um, you know, thermatological. There's so many. <laughs> oh, it's so rich, Eric. What, what? Why did you agree to do this show with me on this story? Well, this is one of those stories that read to me differently on subsequent thought. Mm-hmm. I love the language. I find it amusing. Yeah, I'm glad yeah, you it laugh is. As, as, you re, as you repeat those silly. I mean, you know, he says terrene instead of earthy. Right. Yeah. All right. He, he says lustrum instead of half decade. Right. I mean, he's just he'll do whatever he can to to make the language put us into some kind of mythic world. Mm-hmm. And so we go and these two brothers are such amazing people, Superman, as you call them. And then just as um, the microbes save Earth at the end of War of the Worlds, through no no action of the humans involved, the plants give an easeful death mm. to Hotar and Evidon through no action of their own. In fact, the planet is more powerful than they are. Mm-hmm. And one thinks, oh, well, you know, a, a blessed release. More interesting, perhaps, than just being drowned. Right, right. But on thinking about it, I despise these brothers. <laughs> yeah, you should. They're monsters. They are terrible. If they could, in fact, build a ship to get to Venus, they could build a ship to get to the rest of the world. Right. It's only Atlantis that's sinking, in. right? <laughs> exactly. 
if they want to carry on civilization, they should bring women with them. Yep. Right? They don't care about anybody. They, we're told that they free their slaves by a writ of manumission. Right. Well, that's that's They're going to sink nice. in a few minutes. <laughs> exactly. And it's reasonable that they use slaves because the whole myth of Atlantis we know through Plato. And in Plato's Republic, the economy is based on the work of the helots, slaves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this is a platonic echo throughout all of this. However, these slaves who don't understand what they're doing are, in fact, doing complex work for the brothers, And I have got to ask myself, on reflection, how do these deaf mutes get instructed in what they're supposed to do? And the only answer that makes any sense is that they are shown it. Physically, you get shown how to do it, and then you have to remember how to do it. So there's nothing that these people are doing that requires any intellect whatsoever. Mm Mm-hmm. That kind of undercuts the significance of what's being done here. The other way they could be known, uh, sh- instructed, is in writing. Mm-hmm. But if And maybe writing matters to them since they're given a writ of manumission. Right. But if they can be instructed in writing, they could just as easily rat on the brothers by writing out what those guys are doing. Indeed. These brothers, I have the feeling that they aren't just deaf mutes that happen to be around. I have a feeling that these are human beings that were turned into deaf mutes by these brothers, pop their eardrums, cut out their tongues. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I see them, as you say, Jesse, as monsters. And so this voyage to why, why does Smith decide to call the planet Sphenomoe, <laughs> even though he tells us that it means Venus? Right. And I think the reason is this. If it were Venus... It would be the planet of love. Mm. It would be a planet that we would assume would be rich and fecund, not with something anti-human, but with something human. At this time in the history of science, in fact, Venus was thought of as potentially habitable by human beings. Mm -hmm. Uh, not, Not after we were able to take actual temperature measurements, but at this time, it was entirely plausible. Venus is, you know... The, the goddess of love. These guys don't care about their parents, their children, their civilization, their workers. They forget about Earth entirely, losing themselves in philosophy. Mm-hmm. And they are delighted to be overcome by opioids. Yep. This is the story about, goes right back to Mary Shelley. Scientists who are so committed to science that they cut women out of the equation altogether. Mm-hmm. That the only thing they're interested in is the pursuit of science, and this is their joy. In Frankenstein, it leads to the scientist's death. Here, it leads to the brother's death. Mm-hmm. Because Venus, just like Earth, does not accommodate those who want power that they should not possess. This, I think, is a story that on first reading struck me, at least, as elegiac, accidentally elegiac, as in the end of the War Mm -hmm. of the Worlds, but in fact, as monitory. It, It warns us against becoming intoxicated by the pursuit of science. Mm-hmm. There's uh, so many 
fun things that Smith has done to take a simple plot and make it so filigreed. The, uh, uh, this science that they do, everything is doubled, right? So, uh, the telescopes they use are not regular, uh, telescopes. They're, they're mirrored telescopes, which means there's two mirrors at least, but actually you need more than that. You need four mirrors, uh, to get the, the light down the, to the bottom mirror and then bounce it back up to a little mirror that bounces it over to another mirror that brings it to the lens, right? So there's, there's all this doubling and there's the, the, the two brothers who have basically unlocked every kind of power. Right, we have a list. One by one, their fellow savants had learned the archaic, ar- ar- sorry, arcanic secrets of geology, of chemistry, of biology, of astronomy. They had subverted the elements, had constrained the sea, the sun, the air, the force of gravitation, compelling them to serve the uses of man. And lastly, they had found a way to release the typhonic power of the atom to destroy, transmute, and reconstruct the molecules of matter at their will. There's nothing beyond these brothers. There, the issue is, you know, they leave their regular home uh, by the ocean and go up to their uh, mountain retreat, their fortress of solitude, except they're alone with each other and all their deaf mutes are slaves. And then they get to busy building their spaceship. They haven't even visited any other continent on the entire planet. When they get into orbit, they're like, wow, look at all those... Those other continents, amazing. And then they spend the rest of their time, uh, takes many years, right? They started middle-aged and they end as old men uh, traveling from Earth to Venus. And they're doing all their science and reading the literature (laughs) as they cross space, um, eating food and, uh, you know, they've got artificial gravity boots or whatever. And then when they get to the orbit, they don't just descend right away. They do the exact same thing. They just look down and look, oh, we got to measure all this stuff. So this, um, uh, upon second reading for me, I was like, uh, these these blood brothers who are also regular brothers and they're twin brothers, it's pretty much, you know, they're indistinguishable. They both have five foot beards. It's hilarious. Um, what do they do? When they get there, they're like, wow, look at those flowers. And it's like Dr. Seuss world where you see a, <laughs> a animal with m- many legs with flowers coming off of its rump. He's, he's having so much fun. And then they die, but they die in a way that disappears them painlessly, as you say, opiate. Right. So uh, this story is ridiculous and hilarious, but it's doing so many things in such a short space it's it's and it's got a frame device right where the guy says you know there's many marvelous tales but the most marvelous tale of all is this one that i got through a dream now let me write it down for you (laughs) so it's got everything eric this is and even try and classify as genre it doesn't feel like science fiction uh because of all the floweriness that's happening, but it's hard science fiction in, in many respects here and there. It is. Right? But it's to the extent that it's hard science fiction, it's hard science fiction embedded in fantasy. Right. right? We have to believe, if we believe the story at all, 
it's because we're believing that transcription of a dream, as you say. Mm -hmm. uh, that very first paragraph is a spectacularly good setup mm -hmm. for for instigating and questioning the whole notion of narrative belief. But having given us such compelling and ostentatious vocabulary, he keeps us, that is Smith, keeps us attending closely to the very structure and very sound of each sentence. And it's only on reflection that we come to understand the whole, which is why when we're done reading this, and even after we pause in discussing it, there's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.